Romans chapter 5. If you'll give me a few minutes of your time, I'll give you a few thoughts that I hope are precious to you on how far Jesus Christ our Lord exceeded us in loving His enemies. When we're faced with a situation that we read about and thought about this morning, it's hard. It's hard for us to love our enemies, to put down thoughts of revenge, retaliation, bitterness, grudges that we carry with us. But the Lord went so far beyond that, and I hope I can share that with you. I want to read to you six verses, Romans chapter 5, verses 6 through 11. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. For scarcely... For a righteous man will one die, yet peradventure for a good man some would even dare to die. But God commendeth his love toward us, in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Much more than, being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. For if, when we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of His Son. Much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by His life. And not only so, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Amen. Amen and amen. Precious words that have been read countless thousands and millions of times by believers for the last 2,000 years. And we put ourselves into those personal pronouns, don't we? Paul wrote to the church at Rome and said we, and he meant himself and them, but the Holy Spirit meant more than that. He meant us as well tonight that are here. And so it's very personal to us. This morning, we read and studied Matthew chapter 5, 43 through 48 where Jesus said to love your enemies, that we may be the children of our Father which is in heaven, for He sends His rain on the just and the unjust, and His sunshine on the evil and the good. But oh, He's done more than that. That is just His general providential care of all men. He has done something special for you and me, and it's through His Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. It's why we're here in this church. It's why we have the supper tonight. And I hope that we can rejoice in what he's done. Let's remember what kind of enemies we were. Look at Psalm 5 with me. Psalm chapter 5. Let's look at a few references in the book of Psalms where the sweet psalmist of Israel wrote some pretty strong language describing our condition and our relationship to God. Psalm 5. I want to read verses 4 through 6. For thou art not a God that hath pleasure in wickedness, neither shall evil dwell with thee. The foolish shall not stand in thy sight. Thou hatest all workers of iniquity. Thou shalt destroy them that speak leasing. The Lord will abhor the bloody and deceitful man. Having studied Matthew chapter 5, we know that we all land in that passage. So that description is not something that we apply to others. That description is something we apply to ourselves. And that's our relationship with God. 
The foolish shall not stand in his sight. He hates all workers of iniquity. Very unpopular words in this carnal Christian generation, but very true words from the word of God. He abhors the bloody and the deceitful man, and we all have blood in our hands, because Matthew 5, 21 through 26 tells us that if we've ever been angry with a brother without a cause, if we've ever called someone a worthless idiot, if we've ever called someone a fool, we're guilty of breaking the sixth commandment. We're in this passage. Chapter 7 and verse 11. God judgeth the righteous, and God is angry with the wicked every day. If he turn not, he will whet his sword. He hath bent his bow and made it ready. He hath also prepared for him the instruments of death. He ordaineth his arrows against the persecutors. The Lord God, speaking of his great enemies, sinners, including you and me. He is angry with the wicked every day. You say, but the sunshine out there looks so nice. That sunshine, that rain that he sends is a token of his goodness. And he's calling on all men everywhere to repent because the goodness of God ought to lead men to repent. And all it is going to do is add to their judgment in the great day of judgment for not having given him one moment of time for all the kindness and mercy and faithfulness he has shown them. Chapter 10, Psalm 10, verse 3. For the wicked boasteth of his heart's desire and blesseth the covetous whom the Lord abhorreth. Have you ever been covetous? If it were not for the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, we're all covetous before God. And he abhors the covetous. Chapter 11. Verses 4 through 6. The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids try the children of men. The Lord trieth the righteous. But the wicked and him that loveth violence, his soul hateth. Upon the wicked he shall rain snares, fire, and brimstone, and in horrible tempest. This shall be the portion of their cup. These are the words of the Lord, describing his animosity and enmity, hatred, and the coming judgment of the wicked. Now these verses already give away with a hint of what I'm aiming for. I didn't even want you to really see the hint because I want to show you the the full reality of it in Romans 5. But you'll notice that there was a category of people called the wicked. And David was writing as if he were outside that number, because he was. God had chosen him to be outside that number. But this is the relationship that God would have had to David and would have to us if it were not for his grace through Jesus Christ our Lord. If we come over to Romans chapter 2, let's see that there is a coming day of judgment in which the Lord God will pour out His wrath on wicked men. Romans 2.5, the whole earth is moving toward this great day. No one wants to talk about it, hardly any think about it, yet the Word of God speaks of it from the very beginning. Who was the first man in the Bible to give a prophecy of the coming day of judgment? How long did it take? Enoch. Where are we given the prophecy of Enoch? In the book of Jude. From the very beginning, you know, that's 6,000 years ago, the whole earth has been moving toward the great day of judgment in which God will reveal that he is holy and he is in his holy temple and his eyelids try and behold the sons of men. Enoch said the Lord's coming from heaven with ten thousands of his saints 
to judge ungodly men of all their ungodly thoughts and of all their ungodly activities. The book of Jude. It's coming. Look at, the, look at how Paul wrote about it in Romans chapter 2 and verse 5. But after thy hardness and impenitent heart, treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath and revelation of the righteous judgment of God. There is a day coming, a specific point in time, when God will judge men, and He will judge them in wrath, and it will be righteous judgment against them, and men who do not repent are storing up extra wrath of God against them. After thy hardness and impenitent heart treasurest up unto thyself wrath against the day of wrath. They are building the treasury of God's wrath that's going to be unleashed against them in a day coming soon. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. 1 Thessalonians chapter 1. I love the first chapter of 1 Thessalonians because it describes such a great church with changed lives that the entire New Testament world knew about because Paul said of them, I don't have to tell anyone about what's happened in Thessalonica for you, the word of the Lord has sounded out from you by your changed lives. But look what he said in that 10th verse. He's describing the character of this Thessalonian church. He said that they had turned from idols in verse 9. And in verse 10 it says, To wait for his Son from heaven, whom he raised from the dead, even Jesus, which delivered us from the wrath to come. There is wrath to come, but there is deliverance from it. And Jesus Christ has delivered us from that wrath to come. Let's look at Romans chapter 5. Brethren, we fall into Psalm 5. We fall into Psalm 7, 10, 11, and Romans 2. We fall under the category of impenitent. We fall under the treasury of God's wrath. And there is a day coming in which we will stand utterly helpless before Almighty God when He judges us for our sins if there is not a mediator for us. But there is a mediator for us. Here's what He has to say to us. I'll tell you something. We need a whole lot more than sunshine and rain. I wouldn't mind if He took all the sunshine and the rain away for the rest of my life as long as he would give me a glimpse in the book of life. Because I'd rather have my name in the book of life than sunshine and rain. He's sending that on the wicked. But he's put our names in the book of life. Amen. Right. Verse 6, Romans 5. For when we were yet without strength, in due time Christ died for the ungodly. Now I've just read you some verses about the ungodly. I've read you some verses about those that are without strength. When it says, for when we were yet without strength, it is describing the human condition, and it's describing the condition of those humans Paul was writing to in Rome. They could not do anything to please God. They could not do anything to earn His favor. They could do nothing to cooperate with Him. They could not assist in their salvation, and they had nothing to offer to pay for it, And when he were to save them, they could not give him anything back in return to make it worth his while. They were without strength. You're without strength. I'm without strength. When we see the wounded Jew in the ditch, 
I'm referring to the Good Samaritan. And I'm not going to preach the gospel from a parable that was not intended to preach the gospel, but to preach the lesson of who is my neighbor. But I want you to think about the priest and the Levite. When they saw the wounded Jew in the ditch, they passed by on the other side because the man in the ditch was without strength. What was he going to do to help? They were going to have to do it. They could see that they were going to have to get very involved, that it was going to be costly, and there'd be little reward for it. And it would take some of their time, and it would interrupt their schedule. We want to remember that because we were taught this morning that we're to love our enemy, and we're to go to that ditch and have compassion on the man there. But the reason men don't is because they don't want to pay a cost because that man cannot help himself. The reason he's in the ditch, in need of our compassion, is because he was wounded. Well, we're worse than wounded. We were without strength. For when we were yet without strength, in due time, that means the time of God's planning from the beginning, 4,000 years after the creation of the world, Jesus Christ came into the world and laid down his life for his people. Christ died for the ungodly. We're to love our enemies, those that are at enmity against us. And ungodliness means we're at enmity with God. Because we're anti-God, we are ungodly in our thoughts, our words, and our speech. And yet Jesus Christ gave himself for us. Christ died for the ungodly. He didn't die for the godly. He didn't die for those trying to be godly. He died for the ungodly. He died for his enemies, as it will say shortly. Jesus Christ died for those that were so weak and helpless they could not assist him or cooperate. He had to pay the whole price. He had to take care of the room at the inn, if you would, thinking of our application and duties from this morning. But the Lord Jesus Christ did that all for us. Verse 7. There's one overriding thought through all these verses. I don't even like reading them one at a time. The reason verse 6 is there is describing our condition as being unable to help, and the Lord Jesus Christ was going to have to do it all for us because we were ungodly. Now it's going to explain that human compassion doesn't go nearly far enough compared to his. Because verse 7 reads, For scarcely, how many of those are there? What does the word scarce mean? Very few. Hardly any. Really none. Almost none. For scarcely, for a righteous man, will one die. How many men will lay down their life consciously for a righteous man. Paul is not dealing with the military. In the military, it is a different situation when you're in combat. You know, it's different than asking someone to step forward in a room where there's no one at risk and saying, will you die for another man that is condemned to death. In combat, where you're linked together with your buddies and you're fighting for each other's lives and your life, and there's the only way of survival is to be totally sacrificial in killing the enemy. They'll take all kinds of risks to keep their buddies alive. But this is a conscious death of laying down your life with time for conscious thought for a righteous man. Very few will do it for a righteous man. And the comparison being made is Jesus Christ did it for us when we were ungodly and without strength. And he says, look at your race. Scarcely. For a righteous man will one die. I can hardly find examples in your history of your race of anyone laying down his life for a righteous man. Yet, 
peradventure, I'll grant you there is the slight possibility, there have been a few occurrences of a good man, of some being willing to die for a good man. We have the words in this verse of scarcely, peradventure, and dare, meaning it is so rare. Scarcely, peradventure, and dare. Because how many men have chosen consciously to substitute themselves and to die on the basis of another man being righteous or on the basis of another man being a good man? Very, very few. But we've already read that Jesus died for us when we were without strength and when we were ungodly. And so he's, he's lifting up the love of God and the love of Jesus Christ for us by this means. Men love their friends. But how many men have laid down their lives for their friend? As John fifteen thirteen describes. Verse 8. But. Now verse 6 described us. And what Jesus Christ, what condition we were in when Jesus Christ died for us. Verse 7 describes the fact that very few men have ever even died for a righteous man. And then we have the word but, which means we're not even close to being that good man or being that righteous man. But God commendeth his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Very few men have ever died for a righteous man or have died for a good man. It's very hard to even imagine it. And it's only happened a very few times. It's hardly, it scarcely happened in the history of the world, but God commends his love by showing while your race does not love each other enough to die for a righteous or a good man, I sent my son to die for you while you were still sinners. That is the love of God for us. There was nothing in us to attract him toward the event, toward the sacrifice of his son. It was purely for his own glory and it magnifies the love of God. It commends it. When we commend something, we praise it. We're thankful for it. We exalt it. We lift it up. We honor it. We glorify it. God honors and glorifies and praises and shows the glorious nature of his love by the fact that he died for us while we were yet sinners. We weren't even on the way toward being godly. We were yet sinners. He died for us. Very different from our race that will not even die for a righteous or a good man. We were enemies. God commended his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Jesus Christ died for us. He did not wait for us to be better, or he wouldn't have died. He didn't wait for us to get some strength to where we could have helped ourselves. He wouldn't have died. He died and paid the full price for us because we could not pay it ourselves, and we were his enemies laying there, not even wanting him to do it as we lay dead in our own trespasses and sins and loving it and being willing followers of the devil and following the children of this world in their evil conversation. Verse 9. Much more than. Now you've got you to gotta think through the three verses that you've just had. Man is without strength and ungodly, but Christ died for them. Men themselves won't die for even a righteous or good man. 
But Jesus Christ died for us while we were yet sinners. Now follow this. Much more than. He's making some comparison and he's jumping to a new level of praise and commendation of Jesus Christ's death for us. Much more than being now justified by his blood, we shall be saved from wrath through him. Two phases of salvation very plainly compared in this verse. Being reconciled, our legal reconciliation before God by the substitutionary sacrifice of Jesus Christ. Much more than being now justified by his blood. If his death for us while we were his, while we were sinners, if his death for us while we were sinners reconciled us to God, how much more shall we be saved in the future, that final day of wrath, through him? Are you seeing the comparison? For three verses, he's dealt with the legal death of Jesus Christ and the cross for us that paid for our sins. Purely at the, he's looking at the cross. Christ died. Jesus died at the cross. And at the cross, our sins were paid for legally 2,000 years before we were born. But now he's moving much more. If his death, if his blood was able to save us while we were without strength and sinners, how much more does his life, is his life going to be able to help us in the great day of judgment that's coming? You say, I don't see it clearly yet. Well, that's why we have verse 10. For if, he's explaining, verse 10, and I'll show you, let's cheat and look ahead in the middle of the verse. You can't ever cheat in studying by looking ahead. It'll help sometimes. Look ahead into verse 10. Do you see the words much more again? Two-thirds of the way through the verse? Okay, he's explaining verse 9. For if, when we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his Son, much more, being reconciled, we shall be saved by his life. There's two comparisons he's making that are much better. The first is, his death was able to save us while we were sinners and enemies. Now we're no longer sinners and enemies. We're reconciled and the children of God. If his death was able to, de to deliver us from our sins when we were his enemies, how much more is he going to be able to save us when we're his children reconciled before God? Two phases of salvation. One took place at the cross. One is yet coming. If he was able to save us from our sins, how much, is he, how much better, how much more is he going to be able to save us from that coming day of judgment because we're no longer sinners? Right. We're reconciled to God. And the second comparison that's being made is if he was able to save us from our sins by his death, how much more can he save us from that coming day by his life? If a man's able to accomplish so much by his death, what could such a man accomplish by his life? Two things are in verses 9 and 10. The fact that we were without strength and ungodly, and he, God loved us and sent Jesus Christ to die for us, that death delivered us from our enmity. But now, once we're the children of God, reconciled to God and at one with Him, how much more is His life going to make certain that you will never be ashamed in that great day of judgment? Do you know what the Bible says? It says, Whosoever believeth on Him shall never be confounded. Brethren, we're all going to go the way of all flesh and die. Or the Lord Jesus Christ is going to come and we're going to stand before him. But if his death, if his blood was able to reconcile us while we were his enemies, how much more does his life now as our great high priest and intercessor going to save us in that great day? Because we're no longer enemies, we're reconciled. 
He moved us at the cross from being enemies to being reconciled. Now, if we're reconciled, how much more can his life take care of us when we stand before God and give an account in that day? Much more. Much more. If he was able to deliver us while we were enemies, much more is he able to deliver us while we're his sons. If he was able to accomplish so much by his death, how much more will he be able to do by his life? We should never fear that great day. We should look forward to it. We're here tonight because we believe on the Lord Jesus Christ. And whosoever believeth in him shall never be ashamed. Lay hold of him tonight by faith. He died for us while we were without strength. You weren't looking for him. He came looking for you. You weren't helping him. He saved you altogether by his own power, by dying for you. That's verses 9 and 10. And then look what Paul says in verse 11. And not only so, there's more I want to tell you that you ought to enjoy and and appreciate and love about what Jesus Christ has done for you. Verses 6, 7, and 8 are the legal payment that he made on the cross. Verses 9 and 10 are the certainty of our deliverance at that final day of judgment. But verse 11 is about what you can enjoy right now. And not only so, not only is our future deliverance in the great day of judgment absolutely certain, but we also joy, present tense, in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. There is joy right now in our practical phase of salvation by knowing that God is at one with us. When it says that we have, a, we have received the atonement, what does the word atonement mean? Can you look at it and read it? Can you break it down like you did in the second grade? Can you look at the first syllable? Do you think it might be at? Do you think the second syllable might be one? At one again. We were saved from our sins while we were his enemies at the cross of Calvary. Now that Jesus is alive from the dead, he will certainly save us much more than what he did at the cross when we stand before the judgment seat of Jesus Christ. But not only so, not only that, the apostle wants to tell us in verse 11, we have something right now that ought to be the joy of our hearts. God has been put at one with us. We were once his enemies. We will certainly be saved in that day that's coming. But right now, we are at one with God. We are the sons of God. A way has been opened up for us to go right into his presence. The enmity that was between us is gone. We've been reconciled. We're at peace with our Heavenly Father through Jesus Christ our Lord. Look at that 11th verse again. And not only so, not only did he die for us when we were his enemies and sinners, not only will we be certainly saved in the great day of judgment, but we also joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, by whom we have now received the atonement. Now. Can you guess what tense that might be? That's the present tense. That is now. That's the practical phase of salvation where we enjoy a relationship with God. We're at one with Him. No, I don't have to read Psalm 5, verses 4 through 6, and worry a bit about them. They're talking about someone other than me. Because God has saved me from those sins. My hands were bloody. But Jesus Christ lived a perfect life of righteousness and kept the sixth commandment and I'm clothed in his righteousness. I'm at one with God. I can go to him in my office without any of you. And he lets me right come right to him. 
right to them. And all of you, and even the children, you do not need me to go to your great God because Jesus Christ made you at one with him. You don't need me. That'd be a threesome. You don't want that. Just go straight to the Lord, the great God of heaven, the God of heaven that said the foolish shall not stand in my sight, wants us fools because he's made us righteous through the blood of Jesus Christ. He will certainly save us in that day much more. It's much more sure than what he did at the cross. And not only that, let's join in the fact of what we have right now, that every single one of you, a man, woman, or child, can go straight to God by what Jesus Christ has done for us. The love of Jesus Christ for us crushes all conceivable comparisons of our race. Crushes them. You know, there's, there's, there's one response that should hit our hearts immediately. Paul said, I thus judge that if one died for all, then we're all dead. And they which live should henceforth not live unto themselves, but unto him that loved them and gave himself for them. That makes perfectly good logical reasoning to me. Paul said, I thus judge. That's good judgment. I totally believe that. Do you totally believe that? That the rest of your lives ought to be lived for him that gave himself for you? Second thing that Second thing we ought to do, how in the world can we struggle to love our enemies when he did that for us? It should be easy for us to look for our enemies and to love and to serve them because of what he did when we were his enemies. And you know, there's a third response, to love the feast of the Lord's Supper. Because of the feast of the Lord's Supper, you just remember what I just told you. He died on the cross when we were his enemies, much more will he be able to save us in that day because he's alive forevermore to make sure that not a single one is lost. And not only those two great facts, but we can joy in God through Jesus Christ our Lord right now because he has put us at one again with God. I hope that you are at one with God tonight. If you have sin between you and God and you feel his ears are stopped up and his hand is shortened that it cannot save you, it's not because his ears are stopped up or his hand is shortened or his arm. It's because our sins separate us from God. And do you know how long it takes us to have those sins taken out of the way? A few seconds for you to tell God that you are repenting of your wickedness and he will forgive you. He is faithful and just to forgive you your unrighteousness and to restore that perfect relationship again, purchased once by the Lord Jesus Christ. He asks of us to turn and to repent, and he will restore that fellowship and peace and joy that we have with him. We have something now, and that's joy in God through our Lord Jesus Christ. May the Lord bless the preaching of his word.